Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Phil Hiltz, research associate at MIT and former director of the Knight Science Journalism Fellowships. Uh, and today I'll be the moderator. The forum is presented in partnership with Tangled Bank Studios, a film production company of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and in collaboration with NOVA, PRI's The World, and WGBH. Uh, NOVA aired a film on PBS last week called Vaccines Calling the Shots. That was produced uh, at NOVA at, uh, by NOVA at WGBH, Tangled Bank Studios, Gene Pool Productions. And we're lucky to have some of the producers with us here in the audience today. Uh, we'll be showing three clips from that film during today's webcast. Um, we will also take questions from the online and studio audiences both. Questions for the panelists can be emailed to the forum, all one word, at hsph.harvard.edu or tweeted to at forum HSPH using hashtag hash vaccines trust. You can also participate in a live chat discussion that's happening on the forum site right now. Today's panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Seth Manukin, Associate Director of MIT's Graduate Program in Science Writing and author of The Panic Virus, The True Story Behind the Vaccine Autism Controversy. We have Barry R. Bloom, uh, Professor of Public Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. We have Richard Malley, Senior Associate Physician in Medicine Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital Boston. And we have Jane Kim, Associate Professor of Health Decision Science, Harvard School of Public Health. So we've gathered here to discuss trust in vaccines. Um, while most Americans do vaccinate their children and routinely follow recommendations, uh, some are now choosing to alter the recommended schedule themselves or select specific vaccines they will allow to, to be given to their children. And some have even declined to vaccinate their children altogether. Uh, why and why are these decisions important? To kick off the conversation, we will show the first of three clips from the Nova film. This clip shows several mothers who explain their decisions about vaccinating their children. Gabriella Moxman wants to vaccinate her two children but she's chosen not to follow the recommended vaccine schedule. So the plan is to be fully vaccinated as soon as possible, but we're doing one vaccine at a time. I don't know if that's the right way. You I know, don't even know where he came up with that. Yeah, I don't know. Yulia Patze has a four-year-old and is expecting another child soon. She delayed vaccinating her oldest till she was three. I was concerned that her immune system couldn't handle it. and We just waited. Um, my son and her, they're not vaccinated yet, and my older ones don't have boosters. Mariana Fastovsky has four children. She vaccinated at first, but then one child had a seizure. So I'm just really worried about reactions. And I am worried about the diseases, so kind of confused, really. <laughs> In America, children must be vaccinated before they start kindergarten but the required shots vary from state to state, and most allow for exemptions based on personal or religious beliefs. Here in California, almost 3% of children are exempt, and in some schools, it's more than 30%. I have a lot of friends who don't vaccinate at all, and if you say vaccine around them, they look at you like you are literally, well, you know, like you are poisoning your child. On the other hand, um, you have parents that, that can't even understand 
why this is even a question. Nobody is willing to really have a conversation with you and discuss what's a severe reaction? Is it okay to have a seizure? I would really like to know what the real risks are. Okay, Seth, what do you think is going on here? What leads to this hesitancy? Well, one thing I think is interesting is we're dealing with a generation that for the most part has not uh, seen the effects of vaccine preventable diseases. Mm -hmm. So my peers have not grown up in an era where they saw children blinded by rubella um, or routinely hospitalized by measles. One thing I think is really interesting about that clip is, is their statement that, um, I don't know if this is the right way, I don't even know how we came up with this when they're talking about uh, the alternate vaccine schedules, which is one of the things I find so shocking because we do know how we actually came up with the vaccine schedule that is recommended. Um, and that's figuring out how we could best protect children. So what those parents are doing are leaving their children vulnerable at the exact moment when all of those vaccine preventable diseases are gonna potentially do the most harm. Right. Um, so, but you know, I, I think in addition to they're not having seen a lot of these diseases, you also saw there some skepticism, some larger skepticism right. um, about expertise, uh, about doctors in some situations. Right, right. So a lot going on. Yeah, I'm a bit confused, I guess. So let's look at another clip about vaccines. Um, this one begins with an immunologist, Gustav Nossel from the University of Melbourne. What we have seen in the industrialized world is essentially all of the major epidemics they've vanished. Mums today have every expectation that their beautiful little baby will live and not be polished off by diphtheria, by tetanus, even occasionally by measles. Now that is the transformation in young lives that vaccines have wrought. Vaccines do more than protect individuals. They can protect entire communities. The 2013 measles outbreak in New York hit hard and fast, but remained within the Brooklyn area. Why didn't it spread to the other 8 million people in the city? The virus was in circulation, even though it often wasn't obvious. And it was being carried by people who often had no idea they were infected. But the vast majority of people who came into contact with the virus had protection. They were vaccinated. There's two things that matter for whether or not I'm going to get sick. One is, if I bump into somebody who has the disease, am I protected against it or not? But the other piece, and the more important piece, is the chance I will bump into somebody in the first place who has this disease. And you can think of this as these sort of concentric circles of people. And the less the disease exists in my circle or the next circle or the next circle, the safer I am. It's known as herd immunity, and it protects everyone, including young babies and people who can't be vaccinated for medical reasons. And in New York, it worked. If we didn't have the high vaccination levels that we do, you know, in New York City and, and even in, in this community, 
I can promise you we would have had hundreds, if not thousands, of cases. But this protection is fragile. For highly infectious diseases like measles, we need 95% of the community vaccinated for herd immunity to hold. If the rate drops, even just a few percent, herd immunity can collapse. Barry, tell us more about uh, vaccines themselves and how their nature fits into this picture. So the whole concept of a vaccine <clears throat> is to um, help uh, people, particularly kids, develop an immune response against a germ uh, that threatens uh, ultimately their lives. Uh, the usual way it was done historically is you got sick with an infection and you either lived or died. If you lived, you probably generated immune response, so many infections don't come twice. Um, but I think what Sir Gus Nossel's comment was is hard to imagine how astonishing the effects of vaccines were. I mean, it's the only example where a disease, smallpox, has been eradicated from the face of the earth. And I think it's hard for you to imagine, but there were 50 million patients with smallpox, a very big percentage of which, 80% in the case of children, died from smallpox. Um, that's gone since 1977. Um, polio, 350,000 paralyzed cases worldwide before the vaccine. And now we have maybe um, 15 to 20, uh, we have in this country essentially no polio or very, very little. Um, and before then, in the US, we had 20,000 cases of kids that are paralyzed. Before whooping cough vaccine, there were 12 million kids in this country who got uh, whooping cough. Every kid got measles. And so these have done spectacular things. Question is, how do we know they're safe? Are they safe? And the answer is, um, vaccines are different than drugs. We know that because you give them to healthy kids, not people who are sick. And we have to be enormously thoughtful and careful to prevent anyone from being harmed by a vaccine. But people are very different. No vaccine is absolutely perfect. And there are, for the vaccines we give now, on the order of one in a million child will find an adverse effect. We'd love to reduce that to zero, but the fact is that the safety is as good as it can be made. And we take, we, the scientific community, the medical community, uh, take that uh, e enormously seriously. We heard about, we would like to call it community Im immunity rather than herd immunity. Uh, what happens when you stop vaccinating? Well, we don't see much. We've had more outbreaks in the last two years of vaccine-preventable diseases in the U.S. than we've had in the past 20 because people, for whatever sets of reasons, have chosen not to vaccinate uh, their kids. But let me give you one example to indicate how serious it could be. We had almost wiped out polio. It was down to four countries when one state in Nigeria decided to stop vaccinating. Within two years, 24 countries that had wiped out polio now and continuingly have to vaccinate their kids all over again. So one has only to look at what's happening with Ebola when you don't have a vaccine uh, for a, a lethal virus disease. Um, so the power of vaccines is enormous and the challenge is how can we persuade people that it's in everybody's interest to protect their kids and their communities. Mm -hmm.
Rick, uh, tell us a little bit about your experiences as a doctor who delivers vaccinations. Well, I, so I'm a pediatrician and I've worked for many years at Children's Hospital. And the first experience I had was uh, very similar to what both Seth and Barry said, which is I started at Children's Hospital as an intern in 1990. Uh, what we learned was how to take care of children afflicted with Haemophilus influenzae type B invasive disease. I became very good at that, I think, by the end of my internship year. And I was ready, preparing myself to train the new intern crop in what I had learned, and the disease disappeared. Because in 1990, we introduced the H-flu type B universal immunization campaign in the US. From one year to the next, a disease that was afflicting one in 200 kids completely disappeared from our state, from, from pretty much every state in the, in the US and then in Western Europe. And that was a dramatic transformation, such that today when we talk to residents or physicians and we mention Haemophilus influenza type B disease, the greatest majority of them have never seen a case and don't even consider it as even a possibility. Now I work in a travel clinic at Children's Hospital where I immunize children, who are children and adults who are traveling abroad. And what I have noticed is very similar to the tape, which is that in general, I, I'm seeing a patient population that is sort of inclined to get vaccinated, otherwise they wouldn't really come to a travel clinic. But even amongst them, there is this idea that perhaps um, we should be managing the vaccine schedule a little bit differently because their kids may not be ready to receive that vaccine. And I think it's something very interesting because in, in many ways as clinicians, as physicians, we participate in the confusion that one of the uh, um, individuals portrayed in the clip showed where if we say, yes, we might start changing the schedule to accommodate your child, we are sort of acquiescing to the idea that this may not be safe and let's manipulate it differently just to make you more comfortable. But in fact, if we said that for her child, why would we not do it for everybody? So I think in many ways, we participate in the confusion when we try to accommodate fears that are probably best dealt with scientifically rather than emotionally. Mm -hmm. Jane, it seems there's uh, some mistrust directed at other vaccines, uh, newer ones, uh, besides the standard vaccine of MMR. Sure. So um, one of the new vaccines is HPV vaccination. I think there are several issues that really make um, HPV vaccination very unique. The first and um, I think most obvious thing is that the vaccine is targeting a sexually transmitted infection. Um, HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection worldwide. And we now know that it causes nearly all cervical cancers, as well as a large number of vaginal, vulvar, penile, um, anal, and oral pharyngeal cancers, which are actually on the rise. So this va vaccine is actually um, trying to protect against cancer. And I think when they first came out on the market, um, there was nobody knew what HPV was. And, um, you know, and even less people knew the, the causal link to cancer. So the vaccine really caught on as an STD vaccine, which automatically makes the issues, the subject a little you know, more touchy, a little bit more controversial. Um, I think over the past couple of years, there's really been an effort with communication and education, a turning of the tides to um, raise awareness that this is really an anti-cancer vaccine. The second thing I wanted to mention was actually the timing of vaccination, which makes HPV vaccination special. Um, this is a, a vaccine that is targeted primarily to young adolescents, so ages 11 and 12, and as early as age nine. And this is a time where health services are not being um, administered as routinely. 
this vaccine requires three doses over a six-month period. So we're really, um, you know, placing a burden on parents and the, the vaccine recipients themselves to come back to the health clinic for multiple visits um, at a time when they wouldn't otherwise be intersecting with the healthcare system. So I think in talking about, you know, how to um, increase the, the rates of HPV vaccination and other vaccines, we'll really need to figure out how to overcome these logistical challenges um, to make the, the vaccines more accessible. And the last thing I wanted to mention was actually the timing of the disease relative to vaccination. So for a lot of the childhood um, vaccines, we're really addressing diseases that have a, a very imminent, very visible threat. But with HPV vaccination, we're talking about preventing cancers that otherwise wouldn't present themselves for another 20 or 30 years. So I do think that there is some kind of discounting of health benefits that we attribute to HPV vaccination compared to these other childhood vaccines. Um, and in, similar, in a similar way with respect to the other childhood, um, child, the vaccine preventable diseases, with cervical cancer, which is the most strongly linked to HPV, We've also been the victim of our own success in that we've had pap smear screening programs for decades that have dramatically reduced the incidence and burden of cervical cancer. And so the need for HPV vaccination may not feel as urgent, but I think it's critical to remember that um, for these other HPV-related cancers, there really is no other prevention mechanism. There are no screening programs. And so the HPV vaccines really remain the best defense against them. Uh, now we're going to turn from describing the problem to beginning to talk about what could be done about it. Uh, patient education is part of the issue. Uh, let's take a look at a clip from the Nova film that shows a pediatrician talking to patients about the HPV vaccine. So people often say they wish they could prevent cancer. This vaccine prevents cancer. Who doesn't want that for their child? Amy Middleman is a mother of three. She's also an adolescent pediatrician involved in assessing the safety and effectiveness of the HPV vaccine. She vaccinated her children as soon as it became available. I am a little confused by the drama around this vaccine. To me, this is a life-saving vaccine. I can't imagine not giving it to my children. On the other hand, I think sometimes we expect parents to have all of the data that we have as physicians, and that's not really fair. So our job as providers is to make sure we separate the issues and bring forth the important ones that should be considered. And then just one is needed for the patient. So this is the, the key is to vaccinate boys and girls before they're ever exposed to the virus. That is, before they become sexually active. I know, isn't it? It's recommended for every boy and girl at age 11 and 12. This is just like everything else. You want to get the vaccine before you have a risk of getting the disease so that it protects you. Around 60 million doses of the HPV vaccine have been given in the U.S. Like all vaccines, it's carefully monitored for safety. There have been claims of rare, serious reactions, even deaths. These have been carefully investigated. There are no serious adverse events associated with this vaccine in a causal way. This is one of the safest vaccines that we have to offer. And it prevents cancer.
Okay, now let's turn to uh, Barry and Seth, who both worked on a report called Public Trust in Vaccines, Defining a Research Agenda. Uh, what research is needed and why? Starting with Barry. One would think that people in the business of immunizing kids and protecting kids from infection would have a really good idea of with the numbers that I've cited and that we know that have wiped out these diseases as you heard in the film, why would anybody hesitate vaccine, vaccinating their kids? Um, we don't have data for that. We don't have good evidence to know what are the ways that people make up their minds about vaccines? Where do they get the information from? How good is the information? Is it social networks? Mm -hmm. Is it uh, over the back fence? Is it from moms at schools? So it's very hard to develop a strategy if in fact we actually don't know what the values that people are bringing when they come to the pediatrician mm -hmm. and say, I don't want to use my kid as a pincushion. Mm. It's hard to say uh, that's not what this is about. It's protecting your kid in the community from many things. So I think there's a huge need mm. for um, evidence that everybody can believe uh, that would help doctors, Rick and all other pediatricians, and people who work in their offices, who actually often meet with the parents, to do a better job of anticipating their concerns and providing the evidence to allow them to make better decisions that are now being made. Do we know why the research is lagging behind? What, what caused that? Uh, I, th I think that's actually one of the many questions. I mean, one, one of the reasons why Barry and I um, led the workshop that put together this report was because we both had had the experience of being asked to participate in a conference, a workshop, a meeting about vaccine hesitancy and trying to figure out why people were hesitant. And um, I think we both realized, I, I realized very starkly that here we were discussing and debating why it was people made decisions based on instinct and not on reason, but we had no data in front of us. Yeah. So we were sitting there and throwing out our instinctual reactions as yeah. to why people were hesitant about vaccines. Yeah. And uh, that did not seem like a, a good way to go about that. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are a couple of things that are really striking. Um, if we look back at the last couple of decades of vaccine communication, uh, and that's the results of our not having this data. Mm -hmm. We've had really poor vaccine communication outreach. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, whenever I see something about HPV, I think of the smoking ads that show someone, um, you know, in the shower with a voice box yeah, yeah. and, uh, um, you know, have someone, a survivor of cervical cancer, talking about what it's like to suffer through that, um, that can very quickly change the conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, in terms of the type of research that's needed, it, just to amplify a little bit uh, what Barry said, um, we don't even know once we have uh, a vaccine-hesitant parent, um, if the best approach is to change the, the subject, which it actually might be, uh, or to sit down and talk to them, or to say, you know what, I'm vaccinating your children, end of conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very wide range yeah. of, 
uh, of different decisions. One thing that's also uh, really, really clear, and, and Rick, you could probably speak to this, is um, it's not just parents who are frustrated here. Uh, pediatricians are also very frustrated because they're put in a position where in a 15-minute wellness appointment, um, when they have you know A through Z that they also need to cover, uh, they're being asked to address these really fundamental concerns about their child's health. Um, and so I think this is a situation where there's frustration sort of from top right. to bottom. If you want to have that conversation with a patient, uh, there's no way to bill for that. There's no insurance code for that. So either you need to yeah. make up some reason why they need to come back in um, or you're stuck not having it. Hmm. Rick? Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think it's a very frustrating situation for everybody. Yeah. Um, there, there obviously, th the best solution, of course, is, is to avoid the sort of nuclear option of saying, I'm going to immunize your child, and no matter what you say, and of course, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, can ne we can never get away with it, and we never want to, uh, because it's, it's really a dismissive way of taking care of patients. I think one thing that's very interesting, and I'd be curious to see what Jane thinks about this, is when you look at the analogy of the um, hepatitis B vaccine, which is in fact a vaccine that is targeting a sexually transmitted infection that will lead to many problems, including cirrhosis and possibly also hepatocellular carcinoma. And so this is a vaccine that really in many ways is very similar to the HPV vaccine with one uh, even another similarity, which is, was originally introduced in adolescents and then shuttled down to the very young, particularly when they noticed that the uptake in the adolescents was really very low. Mm -hmm. But here is a vaccine that really is very similar to the one you study. It is a sexually transmitted infection. It can also be uh, transmitted other ways, such as IV drug use and so forth, and blood transfusions. But it is trying to eliminate a deadly cancer. And yet now, when we, when we give it to children, the I have very rarely heard of parents actively refusing that vaccine, perhaps because, as we are now learning with HPV, we're moving away from talking about it as a vaccine against a disease that is transmitted by sex or IV drug use. Nobody would really volunteer for that necessarily. But we've avoided that problem, and now the uptake of hepatitis B vaccination mm. is, is quite high. Mm. I mean, I do think that the initial marketing or um, how this vaccine caught on was, you know, very important to the perceptions that people had about what this vaccine was addressing. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think that now we're just learning more about HPV. We're trying to educate parents that this is really against these cancers that are, um, we might not see as often as, you know, some other cancers, but really mm -hmm. the, these are the only ways to prevent, prevent them. Um, I think will be, uh, is an important turning point. I think the question about whether or not we can um, kind of change the schedule so that we can bring it down to the infant um, schedule, which would be, I think, maybe place less emphasis on HPV vaccination right before your child starts having sex. You know, these things are really that um, end up making it very taboo. Mm -hmm those data are coming. You know, we want to make sure that this vaccine has efficacy that is long lasting enough so that we could bring it down to the infant schedule before we actually go ahead and do that. So we're hopeful. Um, the, the data look promising, but you know, we just need a few more years before I think we can actually practically do that. We have a couple more minutes for discussion of solutions. Any other things that we need to add on top? <coughs> I think one of the things that I would like to, to see, if we had 
the kind of research data that Seth has talked about, and we know what parental concerns are. Um, doctors, as you just heard earlier, haven't seen these dreadful diseases. And so we're training doctors where it is accepted the kids don't get these diseases, and vaccines is not high on how to train doctors to deal with the problem. This school, as you know, is famous for Atul Gawanda, who has checklists for mm -hmm. surgery and checklists for all kinds of things that um, are not checklists that you tick off, but they're points where it tells you how to deal when you hesitate to move to the next point. I would love to see, with the basis of the evidence that we hope is acquired, that every doctor and every person in the doctor's office that meets with parents that have to vaccinate kids will just run through a checklist so they know how not to offend people, mm -hmm. how not to dictate to them, and how to engage them in uh, actively understanding why it's good to do this. Mm -hmm. Rick, can we do this? It's, I mean, it's difficult, exactly as Seth said, it's very difficult because of time issues. Um, mm. You know, the amount of time that a pediatrician spends with uh, his or her patients is getting reduced. Uh, I think some of you may have experienced, if you have children, that uh, the pediatrician now often just lists the vaccines and then some other healthcare provider, right. like right. a nurse practitioner or a, mm -hmm. a, a physician's assistant, will come and minister the vaccine. So actually, it, it sort of it's one step removed from even right. what Barry is saying. These are physicians who don't see the disease and actually many of them don't okay. administer the immunization. So how would they be great advocates for those vaccines? Mm -hmm. I think it's a very important problem and I think some of these solutions like setting up a clear educational program for, for physicians in training on how to approach it mm -hmm. and really not leave it, for example, for the end when everybody is rushed and, and uh, um, time really is running short might, might really help things. Yeah, maybe but it's uh, train the assistants as well. Also, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think that's true. But, but I mean, really, just the fact that the physician is walking out as this is about to happen, and right. some practices do it differently, but in, in several, it's, it's really sort of like almost an afterthought. Here's the person who's going to administer the vaccines, and that's yeah. the moment when the parent might say, wait, there's six shots here, <laughs> and uh, why? what are they for? Yeah. And the person who's administering them's job is really at that point uh, not to engage in a very thoughtful, they don't have time, they could, but they don't have time to engage in a very yeah. thoughtful conversation. Yeah. With so the schedule for HPV, failure. that's got to be right. difficult. I, I also wonder if there's an opportunity to learn more about um, individual parents and you know, how, what angle they're coming from, because there are so many aspects of vaccination that, uh, that worry people. So maybe to be able to triage that information a little bit so that when the provider intersects with that patient, to really get down to the bottom of, you know, what is concerning. So you don't have to run down the whole thing and the whole gamut and actually instill more fear in the parents, which might, you know, actually happen yeah. if you're talking about autism and that didn't even register. Um, and so maybe trying to pre-screen, you know, as parents, we have questionnaires that we fill out mm -hmm. um, prior to the healthcare visit. Maybe that, you know, some of this could be included in, in mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just, I, I want to make one point in terms of um, possible solutions. And this was something that was driven home for me uh, when I brought our first child in to get his vaccines. Um, uh, at that point, I, I, I was lucky to have tied my shoes that morning. Um, you know, I hadn't slept, I hadn't shaved, my fly was probably down. Uh, I was uniquely um, poorly disposed at that point to take in information about vaccines 
anything made me anxious. Mm. Um, if they said, you know, you have 20 minutes left on the meter, uh, <laughs> when you're working on two hours sleep, that's gonna make you anxious. So um, I think one thing that could be interesting is moving the initiation of the vaccine discussion um, to prenatal visits. Uh, when, I, when my wife and I went into prenatal visits, we had a notebook and a list of questions, and then mm -hmm. we would go home and talk about all the answers. Yeah. Um, that was probably the last conversation we had about healthcare <laughs> after our child was born. Um, uh, and that was a time in which we could take in information. And another issue I think we run into by not initiating that conversation in a healthcare setting until after the child is born is that parent has already been primed. Um, there are very few parents who get through their pregnancy and their birth without someone bringing up at some point the issue of vaccines. Right. So to the extent that the public health community, the medical community can be the, the, the people who are priming it, um, I think that could be really helpful. I also, because it's so difficult to um, address concerns within a wellness appointment, uh, um, I think some pediatric offices, if they're big enough, could hold office hours, mm -hmm. um, like once a month or, or twice a month. Uh, you don't need to make an appointment. You can come in um, and there'll be people from the practice there. Um, or having one person in a practice that's a designated vaccine expert. Mm -hmm. So instead of every pediatrician and, and every nurse practitioner feeling like, I need to be up on all of the crazy conspiracy theories that have popped up today, you can have one person. And if a parent says, I'm concerned about this, you can say, okay, well, I'm gonna put you in touch with our yeah. vaccine expert. And make some time available to have those right. conversations. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, now let's uh, turn to um, the uh, questions, uh, both from online and in studio. And we'll start with question number one from online. Thanks, Phil, and thanks everybody. We're getting a lot of questions, um, and I'm going to try to group them by topic so we can take as many as we can. And of course, we're getting some on the autism questions, so why don't I just start with that? Many people believe vaccinations are contributing to the alarming rise in autism. This is making new parents fearful of having their children vaccinated. It is so important to protect our children and population from these potentially devastating diseases, but I have to say having children of childbearing age and knowing several people struggling with autistic children, I have a concern that the way we are manufacturing our vaccines needs to be changed. What are your thoughts on this? Should I take that? <laughs> you can start. Everybody else can jump in. One of the really interesting things about uh, the vaccine autism conspiracy theories is that um, if you look at it, you see the goalposts have consistently been moved down the field. So initially, a big concern was thimerosal, a mercury-based preservative that was in some but not all standard pediatric vaccines. That was removed, has now been removed for a decade. Um, the rates of autism have continued to climb. So I hear some people now saying that it wasn't really removed, that that was a conspiracy perpetrated by the vaccine manufacturers. Most people don't believe that. Um, but now you have these new other concerns that it's too many too soon, uh, that um, it's too young, that kids' immune systems aren't prepared for this. And the, I think the only real answer is that every single piece of research um, and I think autism, out of all the adverse reactions, has been studied more than almost any other because of the intense focus on it. Uh, every single piece of research has indicated that there is absolutely no connection um, whatsoever. Uh, so I, my personal view is that one of the reasons why there's so much anxiety about 
autism is because um, there are people within the autism community that feel very let down um, by their healthcare professionals and, and by the public health community. Um, and I think that's a very real thing. Uh, and so this is something that they can react against. Um, and then it's sort of like throwing a pebble in a pond and those concerns just ripple out. Um, but, you know, I think really the only answer uh, to questions is we have a, a boatload of research and it all says the same thing. And it may not even be that autism is the main concern. Hesitancy may be caused by other things as well. What do you think? Oh, I, th I think so. I, I, I really agree completely with what Seth said. The, in a way, we might have created this problem mm -hmm. by stating that um, in, in our speed or in our desire for speed in getting parents to agree to the vaccines, I think many practitioners, myself included, will say these vaccines are safe. And that is a correct statement, but the secondary statement should also be, yes, there are some side effects, and some of them are serious, but they're extremely rare. But because that second sentence is not often spoken or maybe yeah. not even heard, you end up with parents who hear on the one hand that the medical community is completely denying any association between vaccines and autism, and I think that that is a, to the extent that we can, it is a proven scientific fact. But at the same time, they're being told that vaccines are safe, and yet they hear of all sorts of uh, instances where vaccines clearly could be and should be implicated, such as seizures or uh, acute demyelinating diseases and, and various diseases that are very rare but are probably causally related to vaccines. Mm -hmm. And so the language that we use to try to convince patients to accept the vaccines that are extremely safe, but not 100% safe, may have led to some of these problems. Right. Let's turn to the audience here. Uh, questions uh, from you about vaccines and hesitancy. Um, yes, in terms of understanding the magnitude of, of risk, uh, you described a few of the uh, secondary um, reactions that can occur. If, if you could give me that as a parent in a form that I might be able to understand, maybe the number of injuries when children have a car seat as opposed to not have a car seat, or a person who smokes, who doesn't smoke, things that I can actually see in my community, um, that might help me understand how safe it is. Barry? So we, we struggle at the other end of things, which is to get a new vaccine through the incredibly thick levels of phase one trials for safety, phase two trials, larger numbers of people for safety and showing correlates of protection. And then um, to take the original polio vaccine, run in 1.8 million children to see what the adverse effect ratios were. So there are very few vaccines where serious life-threatening effects that we're giving in this country um, are of the order of more than one per million children. If a kid doesn't get a sore arm from some of the vaccines, it means we're not stimulating the inflammatory response that helps get a good immune response. So kids having a sore arm and crying is not what we would call a severe adverse effect, and it may be beneficial. There are these rare cases of uh, acute reactions that are unexplained, and um, there is a system called VAERS, Vaccine Adverse Effects, where 
every batch of every commercial vaccine is categorized such that anyone who has an adverse effect, doctor or patient, doesn't have to be proven, can be phoned in uh, to this network and it is investigated and we keep score on that from all the kids that are vaccinated. So we have numbers on the number of adverse effects, severe and not so severe. I have no idea how many kids are not wearing seatbelts that I could compare it with, but it's a great question. <laughs> Although, I mean, one, one, an example I sometimes use is every year there are people who are killed because they're wearing seatbelts, because it ends up crushing their sternum or, um, and yet I don't think anyone would say, well, because of this infinitesimal percent, I'm not gonna wear a seatbelt anymore. Um, or another thing I sometimes tell parents is you're more likely to get in a car accident on the way to your doctor's appointment than you are uh, for your child to have an adverse effect. Because I think, I think you're right, one in a million is sort of meaningless um, when a parent is trying to think of that. So, Other questions from the audience? Down here. Hi, thank you. My name is Vicki. I'm a fourth year medical student and NPH student here at Harvard. Um, I, when you mentioned um, the latest vaccine conspiracy theories, I was reminded of an article that was shared recently with me by a member of the non-medical community. Um, one of the latest conspiracy theories, which was that the CDC has covered up reports that there was a 300 times greater risk of autism developing in African-American boys as opposed to the general population from MMR vaccines. Um, and even though we might be able to critique the scientific validity of what or whatever of these results. Um, how can we be sensitive to the concerns of communities that have historically been uh, marginalized and have historically had a relationship of mistrust with the medical community? Rick? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's an excellent question. I, I think, uh, I don't think there's an easy answer to this one. The, the, the fact is that when you obtain consent for immunizations in a clinic, um, you know, ideally you would, you would give the same information to every patient that you see in your office. But the reality is that they all come with their histories, their cultural background, their medical knowledge, how much they read on the internet. And so we end up, or, or even how many kids they've had, if they've had multiple kids, they've heard this story before. And so in the end, we, we end up certainly changing a little bit the way we discuss vaccines with, with, with uh, patients and parents. And I think sometimes we may make the wrong assumption uh, based on our assessment of who the patient is and what their level of understanding of medical literature is and so forth. And I think that adds to the complexity because you're dealing with, in some cases, communities that have been historically discriminated against, where the medical care that has been provided to them has not been good. Uh, and, and, you know, the medical community bears a large responsibility for that. And the flip side is, of course, that you, you want to try to, to discuss these issues with the family in a context where they can understand it and you're not sort of talking either way above their heads or at a level where they think that you're condescending to them. So I think it's a major problem. Uh, Jane, you want to jump in? Sure, I think an interesting um, observation that we've made with HPV vaccination is actually the rate of uptake among Hispanic girls and boys is actually significantly higher than it is for um, non-Hispanic white and non-Hispanic black um, children. And um, similarly, which is also quite distinct from the other vaccines, is that we're finding that um, 
that families below the, the poverty line are actually uptaking the vaccine significantly higher than uh, those above the poverty line. So there's an interesting twist there. And you know it might have something to do with the um, public access to vaccines, the Vaccine for Children program. Um, but I think some of the research that has been proposed might be able to uncover what the nuances are around why or you know why is this res this va particular vaccine that's so controversial to the rest of the country why is it resonating well with some groups versus others mm -hmm. and I think that's yet to be uncovered. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take one from online. Thanks, Phil. We have been getting a number of questions about vaccines wearing off, so I'll just take one of those. My parents are 84 and 68 years of age and have not been vaccinated for many years. They visit their physicians regularly and receive no recommendations for boosters of any kind. Why is this population not targeted for continued vaccinations against measles, for example, while the flu shot is routinely promoted seasonally to them? Hmm. I'll take that. Any? You know, it's... Um, it's another great question, and um, I just about a year ago got my varicella vaccine for adults. Everybody over 50 should get it because it causes, um, you know, a, a kidney disease, but that becomes shingles in adults, which is a very painful disease. And the data are beginning to show that that vaccine actually works. One of the problems is that your immune response tends to wear out. So it's harder to get good immune responses in elderly people. They give less good immune responses even to flu vaccines. Um, but that's not an excuse for not trying to protect them. And I think, again, doctors have not been trained to think vaccines first because they're so simple, so easy, and may have had it as a kid. Um, it's really important to focus on that group. One place we really see that is with pertussis, um, because the, the incredible surge in pertussis cases has been caused not primarily by unvaccinated children, but under-vaccinated adults um, who didn't realize they needed boosters. My mother uh, had a horrible case of pertussis, was sick for almost six months. Um, and, you know, she does everything her doctor tells her to do. So it was just something that, that didn't come up. These are things I didn't know about. But. Uh, Rick has a wonderful. Well, there's a there's an interesting story with the pneumococcal vaccine. So pneumococcus is a disease where primarily children are responsible for bombarding the elderly um, with pneumococcus just by shedding through their nasopharynx, and as a consequence, the elderly get sick with pneumonia or or bloodborne illness by pneumococcus, which is unfortunately spread from their grandkids and that's a it's a very you know clear epidemiology and it's been even more proven if you will by the fact that when we immunize children with Prevnar the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine that's universally adopted in the US all of a sudden we saw a plummeting of the rates of hospitalization due to pneumonia and deaths due to pneumonia in the elderly even though those individuals were not getting vaccinated right. with that vaccine so getting back to Barry's point about herd uh, about community protection, excuse me, about community <laughs> protection, this is a great way to protect the elderly who may not respond that well to that vaccine, but you're protecting them by immunizing the, the grandchildren. Right. And so that's a wonderful example of herd, again, community protection. <laughs> um, old school, I apologize. Right. And then, but the flip side is that's still not enough for the elderly 
because they're still having significant morbidity and mortality from these diseases. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the problem, of course, is that it's very difficult to study these vaccines in the elderly. Many pharmaceutical companies, one recently did a large study in the, in the elderly, but many of them don't see this as an important lucrative market. And for that reason, we don't have a lot of data on these patients. Wanna Can we take one more, one more. Uh, from online, just so we don't neglect our online audience. Um, what are some of the challenges of giving the HPV, HPV vaccine to children in developing countries, especially given that it involves instituting immunization programs for adolescents? And what about affordability of the vaccine? <laughs> a great question and unfortunately I have two minutes to answer a <laughs> two-hour question um, so it's a very it's a very uh, important question um, you know the HPV related cancers are really most prominent in in developing countries in poor countries um, and we uh, it's true that it, the there are many countries that have very very um, strong infrastructure around childhood vaccination programs and so, uh, you know, trying to reinforce that to be able to administer these vaccines to adolescents, a lot of countries have moved towards school-based vaccination, which has been found to be just tremendously successful. Getting them in, you know, the primary school ages um, and, and getting access to them and then using any additional resources to get the kids who are not staying in school or not going to school. The issue around cost is an enormous problem. I mean, this HPV vaccine is very expensive. It's one of the most expensive vaccines on the U.S. market. Um, Gavi, which is a, a public-private global health partnership that, um, that promotes access to vaccines just worldwide, and, and particularly in the, the poorest countries, has been successful in negotiating prices down to um, $5 per dose. B less than $5 per dose, which is, you know, a tremendous drop from over $100 per dose that we see in the United States. So um, this makes the, the vaccines very cost effective in developing countries. There are still questions around affordability because, you know, you're talking about three dose, two or three doses. Um, and that's still $10, $15 for um, Im immunization where you're talking about countries that don't have clean water and have other public health emergencies. So, you know, the question of affordability is still, um, is still very important, critical, and could be a barrier to implementation. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, um, if one looks to the future, uh, it may be that HPV is a pioneering vaccine. If we had an AIDS vaccine, we're not gonna probably give it to two-month-old kids. So developing an infrastructure to provide adolescent vaccines we know that BCG is not particularly effective at a population level in reducing TB, but when it was given in the UK um, to adolescents, it was about 78% effective. So I think in the future, and if you throw in potential cancer vaccines, anti-leukemia vaccines that are going to be developed over the next decade, um, thinking about how to develop an infrastructure to give adolescents vaccines is something important to start, and HPV is the place to start. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, the last thing we wanted to do uh, with the forum is uh, ask each of the panel members, if you were forced to come up with one thing, mm -hmm. one recommendation for people or for policymakers to move this forward, what would it be? We'll, we'll start with Seth. 
Uh, well, I guess building off the American Academy of Arts and Sciences report and project that Barry and I were involved with, um, I, I think it's, it's crucial to fund research into attitudes about vaccines. Um, there was a, a study a couple of years ago about a measles outbreak in San Diego uh, started by a patient of Dr. Bob Sears. If anyone is familiar with him, I'm not a big fan. Uh, and uh, it cost, there were a very small number of patients that were infected. It cost over $10,000 per patient to contain that. And that was just public money. That was not lost wages or anything else. So if you look at that, you know, 25 cases, $250,000, it might seem like a lot to spend a million or $2 million putting together a series of studies that will give us information about um, why parents are making these decisions, what the most effective ways to influence them are. But I think not doing that is just incredibly penny wise, pound foolish. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have an opportunity now to not make the mistakes that we have made. Um, And we we need to seize it. And we've seen in the last couple of years with with the hundreds of cases of measles, um, how quickly uh, you can have outbreaks and how expensive it can get. Right, Barry. Um, I said earlier, I, I. I would love to be able to have the knowledge that this research that Seth recommends um, would yield so that we would know what the problems are in presenting mm-hmm. the best cases we can. And then I really do like the idea of a checklist, not so much even for the pediatricians, they're well informed, but the people in their offices, in school nurses, in obstetricians and gynecologists who deal nine months before and have a chance of imprinting the question. So when Seth has a new kid and is up all night and a wreck, no more, um, they don't have to go through the 14 vaccines and figure out which ones they want to deal with. A checklist or several could be enormously helpful and translated into languages for countries all around the world. Well, I would agree. I would say once those two things have been accomplished, uh, then um, really try to start educating the healthcare professionals at every stage and, inc- you know, not just pediatricians, not just internists, but as we said, OBGYNs mm-hmm. and general practitioners, of course, family practice doctors, nurses, and so forth, really to try to have a, to benefit from that research so that we can actually tackle the cultural issues, the sort of, um, uh, knowledge gap between uh, that that is sometimes created by the internet and really try to get everybody on board Mm -hmm. to transmit a message that is understandable accurate uh, uh, and answers the questions that the parents uh, are are really worried about right jane so after or as we're tackling (laughs) these previous three (laughs) ideas i you know i think one of the challenges is the logistics of getting these vaccines if we want people to uptake the vaccines, we really need to make it easy for them to get them. So um, in the particular case of HPV vaccination and any vaccine that requires multiple doses or, or boosters, you know, maybe it's that we insist that the first dose get administered at a medical home so that the, the parents or the patients can have a conversation with their doctors. Um, and for adolescents, you know, maybe we try to use this doctor's visit as an opportunity to tackle on, tack on some other uh, primary healthcare services that we know are gravely underutilized in adolescents. But then for the subsequent doses, you know, I, I would love to see a strengthening of um, other venues, the role of other venues, pharmacies, um, minute clinics, you know, the CVS that's down the street, 
or even schools, just places that um, have hours of operation and have closer proximity to people to ensure that the completion um, actually happens. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the end of the forum, uh, but we can continue the conversation, or you can continue the conversation at forumhsph.org. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.